We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And also take a look at their website, Andy and Don. That's all one word, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and also ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good morning, Scott. Uh, volatility versus risk. Are they not the same? What are they? What are we talking about here? Well, they can be, and it's kind of interesting. A lot of people just assume they're the same, mm-hmm. and it all depends on a lot of things, and we're going to talk about that a little bit now. Now, you look at volatility, and there's a lot of declines, and we've been having a bit of a run, so this is kind of why I want to try to bring people back to earth. We've had some, you know, we're hearing right now, all the U.S. stock markets are hitting all-time highs. Yeah. The Toronto stock market just hit an all-time high in the past week. Things are going great. It only goes up, it doesn't o- it? Yeah. <laughs> it Let's get an end. There's been a couple questions clients have called about about getting higher returns. And this is always a, kind of a scary thing for me. It's almost like a signal. Hmm, maybe the end is near because hmm. there's, that, there's that greed factor. Yeah. In fact, I saw... Uh, a, investment return of a so-called balance fund this past week and their balance fund of this company averaged over 15 percent in the last 12 months Hmm. so now you're starting to advertise high returns and that's like okay the greed factor is getting in there not to mention i I dug a little deeper what this balance fund was there was normally first of all balance fund is about 60 percent stocks and 40 percent fixed income this particular balance fund had no fixed income it had 10 percent in REITs which are real estate investment trust so really it was a hundred percent equities and they're so again you got to really look at these type of things with a careful eye talk to your financial planner but things do go down and they go down frequently in fact a 10 percent now these are these this is the standard poor's 500 so it's a generally speaking the same thing happens in the canadian market there's o- there's over an 80 percent correlation between the u.s stock market and the canadian market just happens to be a lot more data printed about the u.s market so right now, if you look at something that went down 10%, how often has that happened mm-hmm. since 1946 to 2016? So that's a, a good 70 years worth of data. And it happened 55 times. Really? In those, yes. It basically- I was going to shoot a little lower than that. Yeah, 55 times it's gone down 10% or more in the last 70 years. So pretty close to once a year. Um, in terms of a 15% decline, or, or greater, it happened 21 times, hmm. okay, once every three years. And the big bull, bear market, and a bear market is basically a decline of 20% or greater mm-hmm. in, the, in a 12-month period of time. That's what they've kind of drawn the line in the sand. Mm-hmm. It's happened 14 times in the last 70 years, mm-hmm. which is about once every five years, okay? So why the heck would we invest in these six? Okay, they got 21 declines of 15% in, in, in once every three years. Like, mm-hmm. what? why would anybody want to invest in these type of things? And if I look at what did the stock market do since 1946 to September 2016, in that 70-year period, the Standard & Poor's Index at that time was 18. Mm. 18. Mm. It was at September tw- um, 2016, 2,168. Okay. And uh, that worked out to about a 7% return. That doesn't include dividends. So you have to add generally at least 1% for dividends. And in fact, with compounded growth on the dividends, it usually works out to about another 3%. Mm. 
So the actual return in that period of time is 10% a year. But that, that happens in spite of all these declines. In fact, I, I just checked out for interest sake, our birthday, Scott, pretty darn close anyway. We're about the same age group here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 54. Mm-hmm. And January 1963? I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was 34. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's good. We know it's radio. There's oh. no cameras rolling. Don all of a sudden has to change all his papers around. <laughs> no, no. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm leading you astray here. <laughs> Not a problem. Guilty. <laughs> but January 1963, the Standard Poor's Index was 65. Okay. Currently, as of this week, it was 2521. Hmm. It's gone from 65 to 2521. Coincidentally, what did it work out to? A 7% return. Mm-hmm. The same exact same return if we went longer and generally speaking the longer the rate the longer the period you go with the the more accurate the return is Mm -hmm. and again that didn't include dividends so in spite of all these declines it did pretty darn well and out of those 70 years guess how many years were positive obviously a lot more (laughs) 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 well yeah just with those returns but it's funny if you had to guess you know, all these negative returns, and this is what we kind of hear. Most people assume that there's been a lot more negative years because that's what they remember. Mm-hmm. There seems to be that, you know, that negative feeling. And for that matter, humans are wired that uh, a negative reaction to a stock market is twice as bad as a positive reaction to a good market. Okay, they, people hate losing money. Mm-hmm. And granted, <laughs> I, I hate it too. Shouldn't, They're they wired view, that shouldn't they view it going up as winning a lottery? Well... They could. Uh, <laughs> they, they should expect it longer term. Yeah. And this is, I really, the idea of a, of a very good investing is not to get emotionally attached to the down or the up. So in fact, over those 70 years, 52 years were positive. That's calendar years. But if you look at the intra year, it can be July to July. Mm-hmm. There might, it went down 20%. But by the end of the calendar year, Comes it, back it, it came right back up. So... You know what? Nothing about the past guarantees anything about the future. Okay? And that's always the case. Nothing ever guarantees the future. We always look back and we look, okay, is this time's different. Okay, what, what's here? We, we, we're looking at history. People are checking the internet, reading the papers. And there's, a, uh, there's this number, $347 million dollars. Does that mean anything to you? No. That's okay. Scott's net worth. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just doing this for fun, Scott. At 34. <laughs> or maybe it's Chorus Entertainment's yeah. net worth. <laughs> $347 million. That was the amount Warren Buffett lost in the stock market on October 19th. That's chump change. 1987. <laughs> 1987. That's how much he lost. Mm-hmm. Okay. But did he lose that? No. Well, the answer is you can only lose if you sell. Yeah. And this is the thing. When there's a down market, there's so many reasons why people want to sell. People want to get out of it. And and it's always different. And um, one gentleman said to me, he says, it's really not different. It's like ice cream. Just a different flavor. Mm. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know how it's going to resurrect itself. We never knew. We don't actually, there's no bells going off to saying, okay, let's get in now. And it's kind of funny because Berkshire stock back in 19, October 19th, 1987 was $3,170. Hmm. 
per share. Mm-hmm. As of right now, it's 280,000. Yikes. Okay. And the S&P 500 was 20, uh, 22, 225. Mm-hmm. And now it's like 2,300. Mm-hmm. Again, tenfold. So the market's gone up tenfold in spite of all these negative occurrences. And so the trick is we will be seeing another down market. I have no idea when. There's mm-hmm. not going to be any bells that say it's going down now. There's, no, there's not going to be any headlines for Trump or whatever kind of outside noise that's going to trigger it. It will just start going down. And then all of a sudden we're going to say we're in a, 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 bull, a bear market. The, the hard thing is how are you going to react to this? And we're going to discuss that a little later also. All right. All right. Listen, we had um, uh, recently we were talking about uh, the changes that the federal government was yeah. suggesting for corporate small business owners. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know what? Part of what our listeners did and part of what everybody did was signing petitions, providing mm-hmm. feedback to their local uh, MPPs. Uh, investors group was at the table uh, citing our concerns and issues around clarity on a number of different points. And uh, so this Monday, uh, past Monday, uh, Mr. Morneau uh, came to the table with uh, the Prime Minister with some revised yeah. suggestions in terms of how this might unfold. And so just quickly, what the one, one thing which was announced and that was lowering the small business tax rate. Mm-hmm. So currently the tax rate's at 10.5% and effective January 1st, 2018, that'll be lowered to a half percent to 10%. And then a further reduction of another percent to 9% uh, come January 2019. Mm-hmm. So about, uh, you know, 16 months out. Now, that was talked about in the 2015 federal election campaign, mm-hmm. and really, I guess, it went, when fully implemented at the 9% rate, that'll save about 7500 bucks tax if you were making $500,000. So, uh, some people are saying, well, you know, that was kind of already baked into what was going to happen anyway. It so was I'm, an election promise. It was an election it, promise. Is that enough to offset what they're losing with income sprinkling? Because this is obviously a, dis- yes. a distraction to take away from that. Correct. It, correct. It is a distraction. So what the next steps, what they've acknowledged, first of all, what when all the feedback that they received was that the complexity of the income sprinkling measures was really difficult in terms of impacting small business owners and family businesses. Trying to clarify that was going to be an onerous pro- uh, process. Number two was the, um, the unintended consequences regarding the changes to the lifetime capital gains exemption. And number three was that passive investments, so this is money left over in your business, that uh, that people would often use basically to manage their personal income, whether it was for sick leave, whether it was to manage risk, maternity leaves, parental leaves, uh, and certainly passive small business income was used uh, as part of a, a flexible retirement process in terms of being able to draw money out later on uh, in the retirement phase. So what's being announced? Well, they're going to, um, as I said, re- re- they restated this in mm-hmm. the reduction of the tax rate, but that they will no longer proceed with uh, any measure to restrict access to the lifetime capital gains exemption, so that's good. Number two is they're going to simplify, the intention is to simplify the process regarding income sprinkling. There is still going to be a reasonableness test, say that 
three times fast mm. reasonableness test uh, in terms of the key uh, being a, still a key component of it and this is only going to take effect as of January 1st 2018 mm-hmm. so that basically means that uh, if you do own a small business corporation you have been paying dividends to uh, adult children this is the basically the final year to right. assess that and you want to have a great discussion with your uh, tax advisor your financial planner what those numbers should look like and um, and finally that there's going to be some revisions uh, with respect to double taxation etc there was some discussion about gender impacts and the fact is that the when when digging a little deeper that the majority of owners of private corporations are men and that men represent 70% of the higher income earners initiating the spring income sprinkling strategies, but the federal government that they are gonna consider gender impacts, which is interesting, uh, and we'll see how that evolves well. So there's more to come over the next couple of weeks. We'll hopefully they're get some more information. They're bringing it up very slowly, aren't they? Well, I think there's been a bit of a rush to sort of get ahead of this because they know there was a lot of bad press. The sooner they can deal with it and get it off the press's agenda mm-hmm. and our financial advisor's agenda, then that's gonna hopefully, because our memories are short by the time election time comes we will have forgotten it it'll all be behind us we are planning your financial future i'm scott thompson andy lister and don fox are here from investors group financial services inc you can call now leave a message they will get back to you at 905-529-7165 we're coming right back we are planning your financial future i'm scott thompson andy lister and don fox are here from investors group financial services inc check out the website andyanddon.com that's andyanddon all one word.com you can listen to old shows there or even ask a, uh, a question via the listener inquiry button or you can call 905-529-7165 and leave a message they will get back to you all right, what do we mean by return? What is it? Can we do a little definition here? Yeah. If you were to think about a return when, you, when you're thinking about your investment, how many different types of return are there? I would just assume the one that's at the bottom line there. Right. And so when we always think about return, the majority of us would say in the simplest terms, it's basically the gain and the value of our investment measured usually in a percentage mm-hmm. or a dollar term, you know, from one point to another point. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what we always think about in return. And uh, and it was as Don was mentioning earlier about risk and versus volatility and the fact that we're starting, you know, you're getting clients calling about rates of return. Could, what it, could it be a higher rate or should we, you know, or could we be getting a higher return, et cetera. But it was, I was doing some research on, on returns and actually there are 12 different types of returns that are often referenced when you're reading materials or you're looking at documentation about a rate of return on an investment, Mm -hmm. 12 different types. Mm. And so each of them have some value, but others are more powerful in terms of trying to compare things or get an understanding of things. So I just wanted to to quickly go through what those 12 types are and what would be important to you. I know everybody's dying to know what is, what are the 12 returns? I am. I'm on the edge of my seat. (laughs) And when when Don and I are doing um, a retirement plan, a financial plan for um, an individual or family, you know, a a return, the rate of return is a key component Mm -hmm. to understanding what is, how is this going to play out in the future, Mm -hmm. right? So returns are valuable and understanding what we're saying when we're talking about returns is key as well. 
So the first one is what we call a price return. So a price return is typically measured if you paid $10, and we're going to talk about returns in reference to either a stock or an equity investment or a mutual fund, as opposed to say real estate or you know other right. types of things. So uh, a price return, if you bought an investment and you paid $10 per share, and over the course of one year, it went to $11. It increased by a dollar. Mm-hmm. That was a 10% increase, right? Mm-hmm. That's our straightforward price return. Uh, it ignores any income. So let's say there was some interest earned or there was some mm-hmm. dividends earned or something like that. So price return ignores income. Uh, and even though I've said, say rental property, for example, you might have income, but also growth, mm-hmm. right? Rental income and growth. And um, it's very, it's used quite often when looking at indexes like the Standard Poor's 500, the S&P TSX Composite, and usually for short periods of time. So over the last year, over the last month, over the last week, over right. the last day. So you'll hear the TSX went up by 2% today. So that was just a difference in the price at the start of the day and the price at the end of the day. Right. So price return is really good when you're trying to measure short-term periods, say daily or weekly, even up to a year rate of return. Number two is total return. And total return includes the reinvested dividends or interest or capital gains when they're earned. And, um, you know, I think the only thing is you got to be cautious when you're looking at, uh, you know, these online calculators to see what has been the rate of return of an investment, et cetera, because often they only include price return. They don't often include the reinvestment of dividends right. or the dividends that were earned because a lot of times the dividends don't get reinvested, but they're paid out to you. So mm-hmm. that is part of your return. Um, now we use total return for most of our uh, performance figures. So total return means what was the change in price plus what was the impact of reinvested dividends, interest, and capital gains right. on that investment. Number three is real return. What do you think real return means? Minus all of that. Real return is minus inflation. Mm-hmm. So we have to take inflation out of the picture to understand what is our real rate of return. So for example, uh, if you had $10,000 you were investing and inflation was 2%, you would need $200 return just to break even, right? right? In terms of purchasing power. So only, th- only the rate of return above that is going to be the real return. And in the 70s and 80s was the period when we saw you know, those inflation rates that were really high, but returns were s- staggering. Like you could get 13% in a savings account, yeah. which everybody thinks about that, but they forget that inflation was 11. So right, right. you were really, again, your real return was only 2%. Mm-hmm. So real returns valuable, more valuable and with higher periods of inflation. Uh, but it does impact the growth of your investment. Relative return, number f- number four, relative return is your rate of return versus a benchmark mm-hmm. or versus some similar standard that you can get to get an idea. What is my relative return to a benchmark or another standard? Number five is risk adjusted return. And this kind of comes back to what Don was talking about in terms of volatility. And so let's say you had two investments and uh, they both had the same return, but the one with the lowest risk measure would be considered to have the better risk-adjusted return. So let's think about two investments. One did, if you can write these numbers down, minus five, mm-hmm. zero, and plus 26. Mm-hmm. Minus five, zero, and plus 26. You add them all up together, you get 21. Mm-hmm. 
So over three years, you basically averaged per year 7%. Seven, yeah. Let's say another investment, the second investment did 777. Seven. So you had 21% over the three years, 7% per year. Which one has a better risk adjusted return? The second one, right? Because it it's was all steady. Consistent, it right? was steady. Okay. Seven, seven, seven. No right. volatility. You know, minus five, zero, plus twenty-six. Sometimes people lose faith right. and they don't hang on to an investment right. that has too much volatility. Mm. So the same return, but less risk. And the measurement often used for this is standard deviation. Uh, in the industry, we can compare a mutual fund using something called the sharp ratio. A sharp, uh, the higher the sharp ratio, the better the risk-adjusted return for an investment. So risk-adjusted return is the best return to use when you're trying to compare to investments. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. somebody might call, if somebody called up Don and said, well, I was looking at this investment and it, it did 12% and yours only did 10. Well, what's the risk adjusted return? How much risk did you have to take right. to get 12 versus the 10? And now you begin to get a different picture. Okay. Uh, number six is return of capital. And return of capital, and this is something we talked about at our seminar uh, a couple of weeks ago, but a return of capital is not a return on your investment. It's actually you receiving back a portion of your original investment, receiving back a portion of your original investment. Okay. Number seven, net return. Net return takes into account fees. So net return, for example, if you had $10,000, and you, it grew by 10% and it was worth 11,000, you decide to sell it. But it costs you a $50 trade commission, then you only ended up with 950, your net return was 9.5%, mm-hmm. not 10%. Right. So net return is your return after fees. Uh, number eight, after tax return. And this is a critical one. After tax return, so really what you're trying to get to is what's your final financial benefit. Yeah. You know, if you make 10, but you're only keeping two, you know, <laughs> uh, then that's your after tax return. <clears throat> so after tax return, it's going to be different for everybody. And it's going to base, be based on your income level. It's going to be based on the type of income that you're receiving. And it also depends on what province you're living in as well, right mm-hmm. across the country. So after tax returns. Number nine annualized versus annual returns. Annualized versus annual returns. So an annual return is an individual one-year period. So from, let's say, October 21st, 2017, or 2016, to today, October 21st, 2017. That was my annual, what was my annual return? When you have periods that are less than one year, so let's say you want to know what was it over the last, you know, 90 days or the last 120 days, then you take that figure and you project it to become an annualized number. Mm -hmm. So it gives you what would be your rate of return, assuming it was a full year. Or if it's greater than one year, if you have a two-year or three-year period, what was your annualized rate per year? Mm -hmm. Okay. Number 10, uh, compound average return. And uh, this is interest on interest. So you're stacking up your interest each year. You get and you get earn interest on that interest on that interest, and that increases your rate of return over time, mm-hmm. right? As it compounds, and this is the best for multi-year periods. So when you're looking over, you know, a five-year, ten-year period, etc., you want to know what is my compound average return. Uh, number eleven is the arithmetic arithmetic return versus compound return. 
And I know you're dying to know the difference. <laughs> I can tell by your face. <laughs> wow. He's looking at you, Don, not me. Yeah. Arithmetic return versus compound return. I just want to know what return, return was, Andy. I know. <laughs> just wait, just wait till the next, next client calls me and asks, what's my return been? <laughs> well, which one are you asking? What, what do you want it to be? There's 12. I'm sure one of these returns will get you that one. Uh, so think about arithmetic return. This is where you take a number that you've earned and you divide it by the number of years that you've had. So for example, if I had $100 and it grew by 100% in one year, so now I have $200. But the next year, it drops by 50%. So my 200 goes back to 100. So basically at the end of two years, I still have $100 that I started right. with, right? But if you were using the arithmetic return, you'd take 100%, right? Minus 50% leaves you with 50% yeah. return divided by two, is 25%. Oh my. So we know you didn't earn 25%, right? right? Yeah. So the the arithmetic return doesn't make sense when you're looking at uh, at that type of period. So uh, and then finally number 12 uh, is the dollar weighted versus time weighted rate of return. And um, if you make a one-time investment, it's very easy to sort of figure out what is your rate of, re rate of return over time? Mm -hmm. Because there's no other variables factored into that. But by far the majority of us, it, we always are either making contributions to our investments. You know, we're adding to our RSP, we're adding to our TF, and we add, do it at different times throughout the year. We do it in different amounts perhaps, or maybe we have a regular contribution plus lump sums, or we're also making withdrawals. Right. So I've taken money out. Did I take money out at the bottom or in the, in the top of the market? We know how did that affect it? And so the time-weighted return is the return that Investors Group puts on your statement. And mm -hmm. it is the best solution to give you a real, realistic understanding of what your rate of return is because it's the best way to measure irregular cash flow returns, mm -hmm. right? So you've got money going in, money going out. This is how you're going to understand the rate of return by far the best. So time-weighted is a very difficult uh, calculation to do, you know, and certainly the computers and algorithms that, that factor that in and the data used to create it um, are, are, are complex and it's not something that's easy for the individual to do, but it is the preferred measurement and the industry has adopted the time-weighted measurement in terms of rate of return. So that way, when you're looking at your investors group statement or you're looking at your bank statement or another investment company statement, they're all going to have the time-weighted rate of return. So now you've got sort of an apples-to-apples right. apples comparison. So rates of return are, to me, you know, it's an interesting concept. Uh, and when I think about creating a financial plan for somebody, um, we're always trying to understand the after-tax rate of return on investments, and we're also trying to uh, account for the real rate of return, bringing in inflation as well. Right. And if you can combine those two elements in terms of understanding rate of return, then I think you're building a solid financial plan that's, that's going to be realistic. And often people will say, well, you know, they might look at something and says, well, how are you going to get 8% or, you know, or 10% or that number doesn't seem realistic. So, and, and that's a part of it too, is understanding how much risk or volatility do I have to take that sort of risk adjusted return when you're comparing investments as well. Yes. And rate of return is part of it. Obviously there's a lot of things Andy and I do and performance is, is an aspect. And to be honest, that's probably the easiest part of our job is trying to create a portfolio 
And with the proper asset allocation, you can get a, a fairly predictable, mm-hmm. based on history, predictable in the sense that long term it should do okay. Yeah. Um, generally, <clears throat> depending on your mix, anywhere from one and a half to four percent above inflation, and that's what you need to look. And real rate of return was part of that. Now, the other part, of course, is just the planning and making sure you accomplish your goals and making sure you hang in there and and all these things. And what does a financial advisor? What can they do? But more importantly, what can't they do, hmm. okay? And this is interesting. Um, there's a gentleman, Nick Murray, and he's, uh, in, he's basically, his job has really been behavioral investing mm-hmm. and how basically people mess up their lives in terms of financial plan. Then the ones that follow the financial plan have two to three times more net worth than ones that do not have a, a financial plan. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And it's not based on the fact that they make more money or less money. In fact, they even compare different income levels and they all... And the worst case scenario was double mm-hmm. in terms based on income levels or asset levels. It all came down to did they have a financial planner or didn't they? And because left to our own devices, we're terrible. We are not wired to make money. Yeah. We are we are wired to run when things are bad and to gravitate towards um, greed when oh. things are great. It's like I want to be part of that party when things are great. And so, I can't personally forecast the near term movements in the economy. I absolutely can't. But you know what? Neither can anybody else. And if there is anybody that suggests that they know what the markets are doing, personally, run. Run fast, Hmm. okay? Get on your shoes and start running and don't even close, like get out of that door because there's no way. And we've been in this business 32 years and we have heard people suggest that here's a system, it works really well and I can guarantee you it'll make X amount of dollars by a specific period of time. Yeah. And I've recently, no, no, this has been 100% of the case of failure rate. Mm -hmm. It has been 100% failure rate. It's never worked. There's the odd person that gets lucky with a couple. Yeah. And they've even written books. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I had one client of mine call me up, and it was uh, about five years ago after the kind of the Great Recession. And this person that predicted the 1987 stock crash, um, he wrote another book. And I so I looked into it. Coincidentally, he wrote four other books in that meantime. Mm. None of them. That didn't happen. Did, none of them <laughs> happened. Okay. But here, this one. <laughs> one out of five. And, and so he wrote that. a fifth book. 20% and, right. by the way, I can tell you right now, that didn't happen either. Yeah. So he had one win yeah. and all the rest are failures. And people are trying to create a financial plan based on a lucky guess. And lucky is like literally Russian roulette. If you, if you somebody predicts something enough times, they will get it one time, mm-hmm. but try to do it two or three times, and that just doesn't happen. How many out there in Radioland hope their family members are listening right now? But I digress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now. Leave a message. They will. We'll return your call, 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. All right, you guys can do some things, but you can't do everything. No, we definitely... Is that true? Come on. Oh, there's... <laughs> You're both Superman, aren't you not? Uh, uh, not when it comes to guessing or guessing, predicting yeah. the market. And it's kind of interesting. The, you know, people have to write stories. People have to fill in news columns. People have to... And they want eyeballs eyes, ears, they want people to be listening, watching, what have you, okay, with this news. So they have to make it somewhat 
dramatic to get that. And so when it's going up like crazy, it's soaring. Yeah. And when it's going down, it's going for just a dead cat yeah. bounce. It's just yeah. it's dropping like a stone. <laughs> you know what? No, no. It's a dead cat bounce. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first time we've used that one. And that's a term when it goes down and then it it's bounces up. a financial up. term. Yeah, so it goes up a tiny, tiny bit. Do you have that definition in your... Uh, <laughs> it's one of the returns of the cat. It's one of the returns of the dead, dead cat, cat return. bounce return. And by the way, the cat doesn't bounce that much. No, there you <laughs> okay, go. Okay, I just want to let you know that. But the economy doesn't seem to be correlated with the markets in the short and in, in, in immediate term. It was interesting. Back in the 20th century, okay, um, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith famously said, yeah. okay, the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and who is this person? Well, this is a very well-known economist, day-to-day key advisor to President Kennedy. Yeah. I remember studying his stuff when I was in school. Okay. Not that I was mm-hmm. around when President Kennedy was. <laughs> <laughs> and he's an economist telling yeah. other people yeah. that don't believe us. Yeah. Okay, we are not good at predicting. And most people feel that they can get a good handle on the economy, then they finally can take advantage of the next zig and the zag. And in real estate's a perfect example, okay? Oh, this yeah. big run up in the market. If everybody knew it was gonna run up 33% yeah. um, up until say April, yeah. why wouldn't everybody just buy a year ago uh, and yeah. then dump it in April? Sure. And then watch it go down 20%. Mm-hmm. Well, now what? If, you, if it's gone down, is it gonna keep going down? Should I buy now? Should I wait? Again, now we're in that lull land, and the same happens with stocks. People see real estate a lot easier because everybody's talking about their house value right now, and they feel a little richer because it's gone down. Oh, sorry, it's gone up, but it's come back a little bit. But the interesting thing, nobody knows, and there's no correlation in the short term from the economy and what the stock market's done. So if you, if you look at some of the greatest bear markets in history, and the last one was one of the greatest, okay? You take account the 1929 stock crash in 1932, that was the biggest. Mm-hmm. The second biggest was the 2008 ending, March 9, 2009. And you imagine if somebody called up and said, okay, I think this panic's getting overdone. I have some cash to invest for the long run. Um, I think the timing must be pretty good, but I just need to know, what's the economy gonna do in the next four years and based on that prediction, I can probably anticipate the market. And if I actually did know the answer, which I don't, okay, I'll put that right out there. And I actually did, I'm gonna, and let's say the answer was, the economy is gonna grow at an agonizing slow rate, somewhere between one and 2% a year, unemployment rate's never gonna get under 7%. That's what's gonna happen in the next four years. You think, thank you so much, Don. I'm gonna hold on to my cash. I'm gonna keep it here until the economy's really kicking up, okay? <laughs> Thanks so much, I'm glad you told me this. Well, as it is four years later, from March 8, 2013, um, from, from the 2009, the stock market went up 128% in those four years, and worth roughly 2%, and plus dividends on top of that, worked out to 128% and plus dividends. Worked, you missed, if you left it in cash, you missed 135% return by taking it out of the market. After the last recession. After the last one. Yeah. So if you were, if you could earn 2% or 1% cash per year, it would take you about 80 years to catch yeah. up. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Yikes. And that was that four years. And the economy had nothing to do with the stock market. Mm-hmm. So they're always trying to say, well, what's the economy doing? Are we going to recession? Well, once it's there, it's hard to know. And then there's no bells <clears throat> that go off. In fact, there's this uh, fable and all the mics 
It's basically an old fable. And all these mice got together and said, you know what we should do? Is we should go and put a bell on the cat. Hmm. Therefore, when the cat's running, we can hear it coming. Yep. And then we'll be getting out of its way. And we'll, we'll have a great life. He said, fantastic. Everybody loved the idea. All these mice, a great idea. Who came up? Fantastic. Thank you so much. The next question, who's going to put the bell on the cat? Sure. <laughs> and second of all. And what are their chances? <laughs> What's and, their return? And, for, and, and after that volunteer, how are you going to do this? Yeah. And that's the same with predicting the stock market. Who's, who's going to predict this? And how are they going to predict this? And there's never been a situation where we can predict. So there's never been even a mutual fund. Which mutual fund's gonna predict the next mutual fund? We've always talked, Danny and I have always talked about asset allocation. We don't try to say, oh, this fund, ABC fund, is better than this fund, ZYG fund. And you know what? One person said, it's almost like watching, we just had that good rainstorm on the weekend. And I know, I don't know about you, but my power went out for about seven hours on the weekend. Really? Yes, in Burlington there. and. Two big giant water splats. Say, go hit the window. And let's say I had nothing. I had no cable, no TV, so I had nothing but better to do. I'm also, let's bet in which piece of rain is going to hit the bottom first. Hmm. That's like betting on your two mutual funds. If you're trying to look at two Canadian mutual funds or two U.S. ones, there's no way. Morningstar cannot. And they, they suggest very clearly, we our star system is not a predictor in how it will perform. In fact, I would suggest that it's the opposite. A highly star fund is generally done far worse after it hit its five-star fund. Because everybody was interested. It, it, yeah. it already ran its cycle. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, it comes back down to earth and becomes a one or two-star fund. They all have their cycles. So at the end of the day, you want to be looking at proper allocation and patience. It's all about, financial planning is all about long-term investing. It's all about looking at the big plan, making sure you're goal-focused. And we're trying to make sure people do not run out of money during their lifetime. That's our goal. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. All right, talking about T-Series mutual funds. What are these I all I want to about? wrap this up, and I got I don't have much time. So T-Series does not stand for timeout. T is oh, not timeout. Okay. So coffee and tea. <laughs> yeah, that's it. T-Series mutual funds. If, if you own a mutual fund, you typically have a series letter associated with it. It might be series A, B, or C. And they usually mean different things. But generally, the T-Series, when you see the letter T, that means you're getting an income stream from your mutual fund. And the income is coming to you as a return return of capital. And we talked about this earlier on in the show. Right. A return of capital is a portion of your original investment coming back to you on a monthly basis. So right. T-Series mutual funds are great if you are planning retirement and you're looking to generate income for yourself, monthly income. And this works particularly well with your non-registered investments. So not RSPs mm -hmm. or RIFs, so your non-registered investments. And we're going to go through a quick example, but they're tax efficient and they're very good at helping you reduce any old age security clawbacks, getting, making sure you're maximizing your age credit and the guaranteed income supplement as well. And basically when you think about a, a T 
series fund, you're going to, let's say you invested $100,000. Mm-hmm. And each year, that investment earns 6%, $6,000. We're going to take that $6,000 and we're going to put it into a separate box. And each year, you're going to take $6,000 out of your original capital. Mm -hmm. So you're never going to touch the earnings. That's going to continue to go into a separate box. But each year at $500 a month, you're going to take money from your original capital. Mm -hmm. So you could do that every year from your $100,000, $6,000 a year for almost 17 years. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is when you're taking that original investment, you've already paid tax on it. So it's completely tax-free in terms of a monthly cash flow. So under that example, you just received a 17-year stream of income completely tax-free. Now, once all your original capital is done, you have your pot of money that was all the earnings. And now you start taking your 500 a month from the earnings, and that is taxed as a capital gain. Mm -hmm. Half of it tax-free, half of it taxable. But during that time period, the the first phase where you're getting a return of capital, this is where the power of the T-series really works out. And uh, so I had a quick example, and a, a client, a caller, Mary, age 71, and if you were at our seminar a couple of weeks ago, I'm sorry we talked about this, but this will be a review session for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a Mary, age 71, and she's retired. she's been retired for six years and recently widowed. She has old age security income of $7,000 a year, Canada pension of 10000 and a pension, survivor pension and her own pension from her husband um, of 33000 a total of $50,000 of income. She had $750,000 home, a $500,000 RSP. She maximized her TFSA, and she also had cash in her checking account. So she's planning to sell the house and downsize, simplify her life, get into a very basic one-bedroom condo. Mm -hmm. So she's going to free up, she thinks, about $500,000 from the sale of her home. One thing we have to remember is she's 71 this year. What has to happen to her RSP? Oh, it has to come out, right? It has, it has to, to go into a RIF. RIF it has right. to be converted to yeah. a RIF. The minimum payout for that next year is going to be $26,400, which means her income right now of 50 plus 26, she's going to be $76,000. And I use that number because that's exactly where the old age security clawback threshold starts. Mm-hmm. So every dollar she earns above that amount... 15 cents, a 15% tax, a senior's tax gets clawed back from Mm -hmm. her old age security. So now she's got this $500,000 and she's trying to decide, well, how do I, how do I invest that? I can invest it and earn interest. I could invest it and earn dividends. I could invest it and earn capital gains, or I could invest it in a T-series and take a return of capital. And so we want to look at what does that mean after tax in terms of the value to her from her cash flow standpoint. And we're going to assume that in all cases it earns 4%. Mm-hmm. So on 500 grand, that's $20,000 from each of those sources. It's going to be interest or dividends or capital gains or return of capital. How much of that 20000 is taxed? Well, if it's interest, all of it, right? Mm-hmm. All 20 grand's added to her income. And then she has to pay 15% clawback on her old age security. She's going to lose $3,000 of her $7,000 OAS because of that interest. If it was dividends, how much tax did she pay on that? It's actually more. There's a gross up, a 38% increase in the amount. It's an artificial increase. So she loses $4,140 of old age security under that. Capital gains, she only has to pay tax on half. Mm-hmm. So only 10000 is included in income. She's only going to lose 1500 of old age security. And on return of capital, none of it is taxed. Zero. So no impact on her old age security. So then we looked at, well, now she's earning 
76 grand, plus she's getting another 20 grand, that's 96,000. How much tax does she actually pay overall? What's she left with at the end of the day under those four scenarios? If she was getting interest, the interest choice, she'd end up with about 71 grand. If it was the dividends, she ends up with 72 grand. If it was the capital gain, she gets 76,000 a year. And if it's the T-series, $80,400 a year of Mm. income. And when you look at the difference between those four strategies, the dividends beats the interest one by about 860 bucks a year. The capital gain one beats it by $4,500 a year. And the T-series return of capital increases her after-tax income by $9,000 a year. That's tax she doesn't have to pay. And so when you think about her life at age uh, 71, she can take out uh, $20,000 a year from her original 500,000 and she can do that for 25 years, Mm. right to age 96. She can have tax-free income and you take 25 years at $9,000 of tax savings per year. That's $225,000 more that she's going to have in her pocket at that over that time span. And that's the power of financial planning right there. That's why you need a financial planner. There's a couple good ones right here. Uh, Andy Lister and Don Fox, Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Great week. We'll see you next Thanks, week. Thanks, Scott. Take care.